Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm with Brian Gaughan, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, Dave Filoni, John Favreau, and the rest of the team at Lucasfilm have dreamed up over the past 40 years. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host Brian Gaughan and I are recording this week's show on Sunday, October 8th, 2023. And it's been kind of a tough couple of days for the Lucasfilm family. You heard about Shauna Trippick, right? Yeah, the costume designer. Yep, Emmy-nominated, best known for her work on Star Wars productions, Mandalorian, Book of Boba Fett, and Ahsoka, which uh, Brian will be discussing the last two episodes of Season 1 later on in today's show. But anyway, we lost Shauna this past Wednesday, October 4th. She was 56 years old. Dave Filoni, the showrunner of Ahsoka, released this statement. Shauna had a deep love and appreciation for Star Wars. You could see that in every piece she did with us. She loved everything about being a part of these stories, including connecting with fans and being a part of that community. And I, I feel like she always had been a part of Star Wars. Her costumes tell a story, provided a suggestion of a life experience that happened before the cameras rolled. Like, I loved collaborating with Shauna, and I will miss her presence. And John Favreau added, her creativity brought this world to life. She will be deeply missed by as both a friend and a, a colleague. And uh, speaking of colleagues, Tripic's colleagues nominated her for an Emmy for her work on Mandalorian Season 2, as well as The Book of Boba Fett. She took home a Costume Designers Guild Award for her work on The Book of Boba Fett, and she is currently nominated for an Emmy for her work on The Mandalorian Season 3. So on behalf of Mr. Gone and myself, our sincerest condolences go out to Shauna and her family and friends at this difficult time. And sorry to start out a downer, but to be honest, this is one of those kinds of shows. And, and we have uh, some similarly difficult stories coming up here. The the costumes in in especially Boba Fett with the, the Sand People, she took something that it was established, mm -hmm. of course, in Star Wars. And then she made something else out of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, especially like the the witch doctor or whatever you want to call them, and and it, it just you would just get sucked into what, and then of course when you saw it, you wanted a an action figure of you know all her costumes and and, and how she really got into the whole worlds and she made the worlds work. That she did. It was it was memorable work, and again, it's a sad loss. So yeah. More news on the other other side here, but I want to remind you, news portion of today's show is brought to you by looking at Lucasfilm's new sponsor, which is Touring Plan's own travel agency. If you're thinking about visiting the Walt Disney World Resort down in Florida or the Disneyland Resort out in California, these obviously knowledgeable folks can help you plan your dream vacation. We'll even toss in a subscription to the Touring Plan's for free. So if you're thinking of leaving the house to go meet with the mouse. Uh, your first stop on that journey really needs to be this website, touringplants.com backslash travel. Brian, quick question. Have you checked out the creator yet, uh, Gareth Edwards' new movie? Haven't been out there, but I um, I haven't been at the theaters yet, but it looks amazing. Mm -hmm. I've seen... Um, on YouTube, they have the like the making of mm -hmm. type of thing, mm -hmm. and it just it looks like it, he's gonna, it's gonna 
change the way we see certain science fiction films? I haven't yet made it up to theaters to see it yet myself, and I'm, I'm getting a little concerned that I need to do it quickly because... It, oh, you think it's going to leave It's the not exactly or? burning up the box uh. office, and, and, which is unfortunate because I, it's, you know, I, I've heard a lot of people say very good things about it. More to the point, I want to say it's a great-looking sci-fi film that got delivered for just $60 million dollars. That's the craft services budget on Avatar, <laughs> The Way of Water. I'm also a fan of Garrett's work on Rogue One, which I would argue is perhaps the best of the, you know, the feature films that aren't necessarily tied to the trilogies or that sort of thing. And But of course, let's face it, there are a lot of stories that surround Rogue One. You know, I, I don't need to revisit how people compared the first trailer of the film to the finished film. And it's like, there are clearly whole scenes or that sort of thing that were shot that got cut out of this thing. And in fact, there's the, the famous five weeks of reshoots that were done prior to this thing being released. And Garrett sat down with Kim Masters for her show over on KCRW, The, the Business. And Kim, being Kim, asked him about, you know, these various stories about Rogue One, in particular, Tony Gilroy coming in and supposedly doing a lot of rewriting on it and perhaps some directing. And, and Edwards really pushed back against this narrative. He said the stuff that's out there on the Internet about what happened on this film, there's so much inaccuracy. Tony Gilroy came in and he did a lot of great work. For sure, no doubt about it, but we all worked together until the last minute of that movie. In fact, he talked, uh, Gareth wanted to say the very last thing we filmed in the pickup shoot was the Darth Vader corridor scene. And he's like, and I did all of that stuff. So <laughs> even given clearly kind of a, a painful memory, Edwards would not speak ill of, of working on a Star Wars film. It's like, Someone who gets the opportunity to make a Star Wars film and then starts complaining about it, I don't think many people have that much empathy for that kind of person. I so don't want to be one of them. I, it was a, a dream come true. I'm proud of the movie we all made. But then he goes on to say, what goes in the Fight Club stays in Fight Club kind of a thing. It's just like that. I, I want to sound grateful for what happened and not talk negatively about it. And what's fascinating in this same window of time. Did you see that interview that Guillermo del Toro did with Collider? The one about Shape of Water? Well, it was the movie he was supposed to make in the slot that he ultimately made Shape of Water. Oh, in. right, right. It was the Haunted Mansion movie, right? Well, no. This was oh. actually a project for Lucasfilm. It was going to be a standalone film, much in the way that, oh. remember, you know, I mean, when they announced Solo, a Star Wars story, and Rogue right. One, a Star, Star Wars story, they also hinted at the Boba Fett movie and also right. the Kenobi movie, which we ultimately got rethought, reimagined as a limited series for Disney+. Plus. But Guillermo had been brought in to direct a standalone film about Jabba the Hutt. Jabba the Hutt, really? Yeah, and it was supposed to be at the, about the rise and fall of Jabba the Hutt within the Star Wars crime world, and ultimately was supposed to reveal what brought about his death 
in uh, Return of the Jedi, which I, oh. I'm I'm sorry, I wasn't it Princess Leia yeah. with a chain on the sail barge? But anyway, Guillermo goes on to say, look, we were doing a lot of stuff, and it's not my property, it's not my money, and that is, it's one of those 30 screenplays that just goes away. And he said, look, there are frustrations, but I, he harbors no ill will toward Lucasfilm. And grateful for the experience he's had while shaping that film. And as you mentioned, you know, I mean, he pivoted right out of working on Job of the Hunt into The Shape of Water, which, given that that, how many Oscars did that win? Yeah, for Best Picture, too. It's, it's amazing. I mean, the, the, it just seems like a film that he's always wanted to make, too. And the weird part of it is, is if you, I mean, this is the time of year when, People show their love and appreciation for the Universal movie monsters. But the notion that you could create a movie that lived at the corner of where the creature from the Black Lagoon and Disney's Beauty and the Beast lived. Yeah. And it would win an Academy Award. I mean, <laughs> this is kind of the film industry I love. But anyway, as he mentioned that, you know, there are sometimes you work on things that don't go forward and. Then again, sometimes the most unlikely of projects. I mean, think about it. If we took a step back five years ago and, you know, the Clone Wars had ended abruptly. I mean, we, you know, we did not get our seventh season of the show. And, you know, we had Star Wars uh, Rebels, an animated series. At that time, would you have ever thought that we would get a live action limited series for Disney Plus? That no. These two properties would live on and and tell a, a great live action Star Wars story. And uh, amazing. I mean and I and there's so much story there too. Mm -hmm. And in the last two episodes, wow, did oh. he put everything in there. Well, okay, so let's start with our first of the last two. Uh Dreams and Madness. Dreams of Madness. Well the the great thing in the beginning, mm -hmm. we got a cameo mm -hmm. by um C three PO. Mm -hmm. And I watched the credits to see if it was just Anthony Daniels' voice, mm -hmm. but it wasn't. He was there. He was in the costume. He did the whole thing. So it was cool to to he's I think he's been in everything mm -hmm. that um Star Wars has done, some way in the background, you know, just hearing his voice, whatever. Mm -hmm. He's one of those characters that is always in, you know, seems to be in Star Wars. And then we got mentioned about Senator Leia Organa, which means okay, so right after Return of the Jedi, mm -hmm. she became a senator again. That's an interesting question. I have to admit, I'm still sorting out that because I'm one of those people who actually read all of the, the Star Wars novels. Right. And so you, you have that stuff in your head that isn't necessarily canon. So every, every so often it's like, all right, wait a minute. Is that from the books or is that from the movies? When you have things like Kenobi, where we suddenly get little Leia and what she right. experienced, and it's like, okay, now does that color what went on? But anyway, mm -hmm. we we were talking about Ahsoka episode seven here. Well, and then we find out where on the timeline Ahsoka is taking place because they mention uh, Gideon mm -hmm. and um, his defeat on Mandalore. Mm -hmm. So they may, they you know kind of like somebody was saying, well, there's a remnant of the Empire. He goes, there's no remnant. There's just a person. That is, they're just Gideon, who was a rogue, you know, mm -hmm. trying to get his own thing started. You know, little do they know, of course. But 
so then we got the timeline. Mm -hmm. So um, now we know where everything is in order, so to speak. So mm -hmm. after Ahsoka, when we get the Mandalorian um, 4, mm -hmm. it will probably start at the exact same time. So this is where Mandalore 4 will probably start, mm -hmm. right where we are now in Ahsoka. Okay. But we had our, our cliffhanger at the end of, of 6. We, we got to see that Ezra is here. Right. We had Sabine kind of holding back in regard to info. And in fact, that was what was kind of interesting about episode seven. She wasn't necessarily all that forthcoming either as they were making their way across the terrain in their turtle mobiles. Well, didn't she think that she basically left everything behind? And then, and then you know, that Ahsoka was dead and then and now she was on her own and that That's Ezra true. wasn't getting back Okay. It wasn't going to get back home, and mm -hmm. and she didn't know how to tell him that. Okay. It just seemed like she was between a rock and a hard place mm -hmm. when it mm -hmm. came to that information. All right, I get that. I get that. But meanwhile, lots going on with Ahsoka. I mean, her purgled trip ends, and she basically steps off in the middle of a, a minefield. Right. And barely survives that and ends up hiding at a graveyard. Of you know these space whales, very similar to the way that um, the uh, Millennium there Falcon we, hid in the there we go the asteroid field. But at the same time, Thrawn was definitely Thrawning. I mean, he is such a cold-blooded intellectual. I mean, it's just to watch him in real time doing the calculations about okay, we can afford to do this, we can afford to do that. What are acceptable losses? And that's in a weird sort of way what makes him such a scary character that he definitely is the brightest one in the room in most situations. Yeah, and remember that, that look he got when he found out that Ahsoka was Padawan to uh, Anakin? Yeah, that, you could literally see him at that moment changing calculations. You know, yes. Just sort of like, oh... But I have to ask, because this is a thread that runs through Episode 7 and Episode 8. There is so much time spent with them moving the cargo, moving it from the base of the, the, the Citadel into the, the Star Destroyer. What do you suppose these coffin-shaped-like things are? Well, I can think of two things. It's either more of these night troopers mm -hmm. or it's the you know the witches the past witches that have died mm -hmm. because you a lot of times you hear whispers mm -hmm. and like especially when they turn mm -hmm. morgan you hear these whispers like there's all these mm -hmm. i don't know if you're going to call them ghosts or spirits or whatever but it's there it's like their force mm -hmm. We find out later mm -hmm. that Perito was not just for the Night Sisters, but for the gods of Mortis. And we find that at the the very end when we see the the the, giant the, car, mm -hmm. the carved statues. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it seems like it's going to be a army that is going to re populate mm -hmm. and now i'm thinking now that i'm talking it out mm -hmm. i think it's it's basically ancestors of the witches and it's going to repopulate 
the planet that they're going to. Darthamir, I want to yeah, say. Yeah, Darthamir, yeah. Okay. Because so. that's their home planet mm-hmm. before they had to skedaddle out and go to Parita. So mm-hmm. I think this is them coming home. Hmm. Well, I got to admit, it's, it's a hell of a MacGuffin that they definitely teased out. But we haven't talked about Ahsoka reuniting with uh, Sabine and Ezra, which th- there was a wonderfully staged battle prior to that. The, the John Ford battle? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I have to write down to the Circle of the Wagons, which I thought... Yeah, that was really cool, that too. That was really cool. And it was funny how the, the two that were fighting were, of course, Sabine and Ezra, mm-hmm. and all our favorite um, Naughty were, and, and our Howler mm-hmm. were hiding... Mm-hmm. <laughs> But throwing rocks, just mm-hmm. like the... Well, no, I mean, uh, you know, they're sweet, childlike characters, so the sweet, childlike character would throw rocks. Right, but just like the Endor creatures. Uh, oh, the, I, the, 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 forgetting? the Ewoks, the Ewoks. You know. The Ewoks, oh my God. <laughs> you know, it's okay, but... Um, but, but yeah, the, it, it, see, it gave me that feel that it was almost the same thing. I mean, here were these really friendly, sweet mm-hmm. characters, and they use frying pans mm-hmm. to hit people in the head. Well, so it's it was, you know, there was the, the Three Stooges aspect to it, which was a lot of fun, too. Yeah, th- this is true. But prior to Ahsoka joining uh, Ezra and Sabine and, and chasing off the troopers, and, and at Shin, for that matter, we Her had fight our... with... Balon. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully staged and... This episode had such a nice balance between big action set pieces. I, I loved Ahsoka's re, uh, reunion with Ezra. Yeah. This really sweet personal moment where you think I'd miss this? You know, came all the way across the galaxy for that. And then when Sabine sees Ahsoka again, remember, remember mm-hmm. Sabine mm-hmm. has not met this Ahsoka, the white Ahsoka, yeah. who who we have seen that has changed a little bit. And the things that she has said mm-hmm. to Sabine makes it so. Mm-hmm. And I'm beginning to, you know, every time somebody apologizes or every time somebody says something, they um, the other person always says, I know. Which is, I, it's got to be Star Wars for I Love You. It just, it just has to that, be. Well, no, I love it. Okay. That's a great note. That's a great note. <laughs> okay. So we end with these three in a good place at the end of episode seven. But as we pick up with eight, they're still in a tough spot. They still have to figure out how to stop Thrawn, who has a Star Destroyer and is the top of, of a heavily fortified citadel. And again, this is Thrawn. He's willing to make all sorts of calculations, the effect of what are effective losses to get to where he needs to go. And a lot of really well-staged stuff. But but what was your take on this? Well, first of all, we got to find out why the Eye of Scion was so big. Mm -hmm. But the whole thing was you could always tell that he was one step ahead. I mean, he knew that he was going to have Morgana Mm -hmm. stay behind. And he manipulated her also Mm -hmm. to get him time Mm -hmm. to escape. Mm -hmm. Also, um, I saw one of the the repeat, Mm -hmm. not repeats, but when they, the videos that say what happened. Mm -hmm. And do you notice that Thrawn has on his uniform, there's a hole near his shoulder that looks like it was sewed, like it's like it was a um, a blaster wound or something, 
and then it was sewed over. And I'm thinking, what if Thrawn is a walking dead also? Oh, okay. It, Ken, now you're making me sad that we lost Shauna Trippick <laughs> again. If ever there was a person yeah. who could answer that question, it was probably Sh- Shauna. Yeah, but it was, it was. But there's like hidden things in there like that. Hmm. The whole thing where uh, Morgan becomes um, a night sister. Mm-hmm. And she gets her wish, but then it gets taken away, mm-hmm. and she knows it. You saw it on her face. Yeah. You just, you just knew. And do you think that affected the way she fought Ahsoka? It's interesting you say that because remember what she says before she steps into the final battle. Right, is for Darthamir, and you know this isn't for Thrawn. This isn't for the sisters. This is for right. her home world. Yeah, he says for the Empire, and she says for Darthamir. There we go. There so, we yeah, go. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But remember, before we get that battle between her and Ahsoka, we, we have those three. Oh, that was a great, that was a great sequence. Oh, yeah. They're going towards the the doors, and they're they're opening them, and, and you see poor Sabine there, and you're watching, you're going, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe she's just putting her hand out. I don't know yeah. if there's going to be anything. But that's mm-hmm. when it happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's when she breaks through to the Force. Yep. Yeah. And even though it's very subtle, mm-hmm. because, you know, we're thinking it's Ahsoka and Ezra, mm-hmm. when she gets in there mm-hmm. and when she starts fighting... And she pushes, and then she has she force calls her mm-hmm. her lightsaber, mm-hmm. and then what happens later? Mm-hmm. Now she's going to be, you know, she's going to be a full Jedi. Yeah. And I and again that that we do get sort of a taste of after sort of the damaged uh, Master Padawan. Uh, you know, I mean, face right. it, we we've seen that relationship heal and grow over the course of season one of Ahsoka. Yeah, especially this stuff with Anakin in the the world between worlds. Mm -hmm. She has gotten her closure. Mm -hmm. And and remember, and then she went back to her um, training Mm -hmm. with him through videotapes that he made. Yep, yep. And that was weird because I'm going, wait a minute, he's back again? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that was, you know, that was a neat little, you know, throw the wrench in and then screw in the screw. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to fool us, but mm-hmm. then April fools us mm-hmm. too. But um, I also like the, the when Huang, Huang and, and Ezra were creating the... Yes. The <laughs> lightsaber. Yeah. And when he gave him a piece and he goes, no, that's a little too narrow. Mm-hmm. And that's reflecting on, remember when Rebels first started? A lot of people got upset that the lightsabers were skinny and long. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Filoni doesn't miss a trick. No, no. He he answered every single question that he ever brought up. And when I'm watching this, I have so much respect for him. He has done an amazing job of giving... You know, of taking something that had nothing to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of it has to do with George's Star Wars, yeah. but bringing in these other things mm-hmm. like the witches and the the gods of Mortis and all this stuff. It's fascinating, and now he's bringing it in live action too. 
Okay, uh, brings me to a somewhat difficult question because this, this is a criticism I have seen bubble up online a lot about Ahsoka that there is an almost ridiculous amount of fan service in this show. But I, I have to tell you, the very things that other people call fan service, like, for example, the moment at the very end of this thing where Ezra has somehow gotten away and made his way back to the fleet and, right. you know, lands the A-wing and is still, you know, wearing the Stormtrooper outfit and comes on the deck and, you know, even Hera has, you know, leveled a pistol at this. And it's Chopper. It, you know, yeah, it's, it's Chopper that recognizes him and rolls over like his faithful dog. I mean, I get, I get that's fan service. I do. But I still enjoy it. See, I think it's more than, than, than what you're saying, that it's everything before he's, he's done is fan service. This is just a continuation mm -hmm. of what he's done. Everything he puts in there is logical. It's not, you know, let's throw it in and make everybody happy. Mm -hmm. No, it's put in there to answer a question, why the lightsabers were too narrow, mm -hmm. of, you know, of, of who's going to discover that it's Ezra, but Chopper. I mean, these are all logical steps, not so much. I don't see it as fan service. Fan service is when you, um, you have somebody say, I don't like the looks of this. You know, I have a bad feeling about this. That's fan service. I have watched Star Wars movies since the first one came out in 1977. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, for example, in the final moments of episode eight, where, you know, you have Ahsoka and Sabine back with the little turtle people and just sort of settled into, well, we live here now, or for now. But again, the language of we're where we're supposed to be. But the, the moment where she looks off in the distance and you see the owl thing take off. Yeah, is it is it Mordai? Uh, Mordai, like yeah. Mordai. And, and, it, and it's one of these things where I saw that and then, you know, in reading the reviews later, it's like, oh, that's the Mordai. That's, you know, something associated with Soka, something she knows from the world within worlds. And it's actually. Well, it's, it's the daughter. Well, there it's, we go. And then yeah. and now it gets, you know, now it plugs in. <laughs> With, you know, where we saw Balin, you know, yep. and which, again, brings me to the other question I want to ask here. Obviously, you know, we lost Ray Stevenson, the actor who played Balin, but clearly that character is on a quest and that's going to continue in some way in season two. So... We're obviously looking at a recast there. Yeah, they, they have to re but there's so many actors out there. Not saying that they're you know that mm -hmm. that Stevenson wasn't unique and stuff, which of course he was, but there's so many actors out there mm -hmm. that they that could just walk right into I guess to so. that. I guess so. Yeah. But he did such a nice job. Oh well it was in everything he's been in. Mm -hmm. Remember he was Beowulf? Yep. Yep. Yeah, he was, he's just been an incredible mm -hmm. actor to watch all these years. So to circle back to, you know, we're kind of overlooking the big part of this that Thrawn does, in fact, escape. And get back to yeah. um, their galaxy. With whatever that mysterious cargo was, and he's headed to Darthamir. And it's there's just a part of me right now that kind of feels like I've just finished watching Captain America 
because it's like, eh, you know, I, I, you had to watch this part of the story to, right. see, to see the next to part of the story. The next I, part of the story, yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I mean, th- this whole thing, what, you know, being the, the first season is just a setup mm-hmm. for the second season and then beyond. It just seems a little bit of a cop out. I, 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 there because everybody's doing it now. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, the, there's very few, unless you have, you know, unless they say it's a mini series, mm-hmm. then we know it's it's finite. Mm-hmm. But it just seems like you know you sat through seven hours or eight hours of this, and then it's like, oh man, I gotta wait to find out what happens to Shin. I gotta wait to find out what happens to Balin. Mm-hmm. Are they gonna be stuck on this planet? Are they gonna? If, is something going to happen to them where they see the light? Mm-hmm. There's all these open questions. And then who's going to stop Thrawn? But also the grace note, the final image of this thing was the force ghost of Anakin watching over Ahsoka and Sabine. Yeah. And we had, as part of season one of Ahsoka, a kind of redemptive... Uh, kind of redemptive arc for Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader. I mean, you know you're watching good television or a good film where that image of him marching off into battle, into the fog, where with each explosion, his silhouette would change from Anakin to Darth Vader to back to Anakin. That lives right free in my brain. You know, I mean, that's just just good storytelling. Well, yeah, and it, the thing about it is, it's just when I saw the Force Ghost at the end, mm-hmm. I just felt that oh my gosh, Anakin is going to be a big part of what's going to happen. Now. There we go. There we go. And not only that, but you know, we know that uh, Yoda's around. Mm-hmm. We know that Obi Wan's around. Mm-hmm. We even know that there are other Force Ghosts that could be part of what's going on too. But we do know that Anakin. Mm-hmm. And and what what is you know what's the Anakin's the chosen one, mm-hmm. he's bringing the the balance to the force, so maybe this is finally him showing how he's going to bring the balance to the force. Now is he going to become the father mm-hmm. from the gods of Mortis because that's the one who brings the balance to the force? Is Ahsoka who already has a little bit of the the daughter in her is she going to become the daughter who is the light side of the force so that leaves the son and could that be baylor (laughs) i mean these are things that i'm watching and what i i I did have to go back because i didn't know much about the gods of mortis at Mm -hmm. all so i went back and i saw the arc the Mm -hmm. three um the three episode arc in season three, I think it is, and mm-hmm. and episodes twenty through twenty three, and now I understand what's going on with the whole gods of Mortis thing, and I know that they have to replace them, mm-hmm. and maybe this is all leading up to that. I do not know what to tell you. I do. I am yeah. <laughs> looking at the notes you put together prior to today's show and you, you close out with, you know, just the notion that we may have to wait another two years before yeah. we get season two of Ahsoka. And I, that's going to border on excruciating, but again, there's some, some amazing dangling threads and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm fascinated to see where the story goes from here. Well, we know that Dave is 
basically the next coming of of George because he ends it. This is and just like the rise. Well, what's the second one? Uh, the Empire. Mm-hmm. The Empire Strikes Back. This is it ends almost like that to where okay, all these things have to happen now. We're we're, we're on a cliffhanger. So I just think that Filoni has has really outdone himself Mm -hmm. and the one episode that he directed was like directing a world war ii film and a a psychological one at that and it it just it just makes me happy that okay i'm gonna have to wait a couple years but i know that it's going in the right direction and and the one also saving grace here is while we're waiting for season two of Ahsoka. Remember, in between there, we have Star Wars The Acolyte, the second season of Andor, and Star Wars Skeleton, Skeleton Crew. Crew. Skeleton so, Crew. Yep, a lot of stuff still coming over the, the, the horizon there. So it'll be a wait, but it'll be worth the wait. Yeah, and I think that Acolyte is going gonna, is gonna to touch on some of the stuff that we were learning here. I mean, with the witches and the, the gods and things like that. I think that's going to be you know, they're going to focus on, you know, the force and where it stands now. I, I have to admit, I have not really embraced that publishing effort in the comic books and that sort of thing. Right. There comes a moment where it's like, eh, too much. But that said, I'm I'm still willing to give Acolyte a shot. So speaking of, of giving things a, a, a shot, <laughs> when we get back from this break, uh, we're going to talk about how Michael Eisner took a, a shot at uh, Michael Jackson in, in trying to see if they could get him to do something for the parks, which is how he got Captain EO. So again, uh, to, you know, feature story tonight, we're going to talk about Captain EO. I chose this particular slant because, again, remember, Brian worked for years in the film industry, and this is kind of the behind the scenes on how Captain EO came together and more to the point what happens when a lot of people who've n- never made a 3D movie try to make a 3D movie? I got a, a lot. Um, a friend of mine was the storyboard artist on that. Really? And um, yeah, um, Ed Ith. Okay. Who worked on Back to the Future too? Mm-hmm. And when he was doing the storyboards, he said he was really bored with like drawing these characters and doing things with them. So he did. He put on one page, cut to. Mm-hmm. And then you turn the page, and it's this lovely girl in a bikini sitting on a beach, mm-hmm. um, putting lotion on herself. And he goes, cut to a beach someplace in Orlando where we see this beautiful da-da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you go back to the action. And he got a phone call from the production designer. He mm-hmm. says, uh, Ed, um, we're going to cast this. Oh. This lovely beauty. Would you like to be part of it? Oh. But you have to imagine that these storyboards went to Coppola, to Lucas, mm-hmm. to to Michael Jackson. So they got to see his sense of humor. And um, he got to work with, like I said, he's, he worked on Back to the Future and, and the Muppets. He worked for the Muppets a long time. By the way, the storyboards for Captain Neo actually factor into today's show. But we, you oh, know, good. Michael Eisner comes through the door, September 84, knows Michael Jackson is this crazy, crazy Disney theme park fan and figures, eh, give it a shot. It's like, Michael, you're coming to the parks all the time. You're paying for after or access to get into the parks. 
how would you feel about doing something for the parks? And in his uh, 1988 memoir, Moonwalker, Jackson actually talks about Eisner came to me, uh, wanted a ride for the park. And they said, I didn't care what I did, just as long as it was something creative. And in the end, it sort of settled down to a 3D movie. And so the Imaginers pitch all sorts of ideas to Michael. And the one that really intrigued me that they did not go with was kind of an early version of Night at the Museum. And it's basically Michael oh, wow. gets locked in Disneyland after dark. And then all of the A8 figures from pirates come out and menace him. And it, then <laughs> that becomes the music video. And so Jackson was like, guys, I, I already did that. <laughs> you, you, you saw a thriller, didn't you? And it's like, <laughs> and they're like, yeah, but, but this would be different. This would be in 3D. And it's like, uh, he passed on it. So, and then Rick Rothschild talking about this project said, one of the other ideas we pitched to Michael it went by a couple of different names. One of it was Space Knights. The other one was the Intergalactic Music Man. But basically, it's a story centered on a bleak, futuristic planet where everything is dark and cold. And Michael shows up with this misfit group of aliens. And they convince everyone that the dark, cold planet could be better if everything were warm and colorful. And Michael's like, yeah, okay, I can maybe go with that one. But at the same time, to pull this off, I want the best people. And what he initially proposed, he wanted George Lucas to produce it, and he wanted Steven Spielberg to direct it. Spielberg, not available. Uh, he's ramping up to shoot Color Purple at the time. Also had just committed to NBC to do those two seasons of Amazing Stories. So, I mean, this guy's dance card was full. On the other hand, there's George's longtime friend, Francis Ford Coppola, and you know, he was just coming off of the Cotton Club. So Francis is sitting at home depressed because this is his second film in a row that hasn't made money. The, the one prior to that was Rumblefish. He still has all of the money he owes the banks, you know, because of American Zoetrope. And frankly, his his wife, Eleanor, you know, wants him to stop moping and get out of the house. So when George shows up with this theme park job, do you want to come direct Captain EO? You know, Eleanor steps in and says, yes, he'd love to. Get him out of the house. <laughs> so anyway, Michael wants the best of the best of the best. And Disney basically gives into everything. He asked, I mean, for example, the score is done by James Horner, who, you know, uh, Wrath of Khan, Disney's Rocketeer, not to mention James Cameron's Aliens, Titanic, and Avatar. Jeff Hornaday, who choreographed a number of the songs for Flashdance and had previously worked with, with Jackson on the Say 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 video with Paul McCartney. He does the choreography for the movie. John Napier, the production designer for Broadway's original production of Cats and Starlight Express, he does the costumes. Rick Baker is brought in to do the little animatronic animals like Fuzzball. And then, Fuzzball, there's, yeah. then there's Victorio Storaro, you know, the, the, the cinematographer for Apocalypse Now and Reds. He lights the set and shoots Captain EO with Disney's two unique twin 65-millimeter cameras. But again, as I said, none of these people have ever done a 3D movie before. And for a 3D movie to work for the audience in the theater, you have to shoot footage that is strongly lit for maximum depth of field. And now, meanwhile, you have a Michael Jackson 
who wants the trash planet that Angelica Houston rules over to be dark and deep in shadow and mostly in black and white. So with the idea that when Jackson and his rainbow-hued crew show up, they really stand out. Lovely idea on paper, did not work in real life. And <laughs> recognizing that all of these Hollywood A-listers are going to need help pulling off their very first 3D movie, Disney brings in Eric Brevik. Now, Eric had been the assistant cameraman during the production of Magic Journeys, the earlier Epcot 3D movie. And Eric said, look, shooting Magic Journeys was difficult, but it was nothing compared to Captain EO. <laughs> so Brevik, one of the few people on the production team that has any firsthand experience when it comes to shooting 3D. You know, so his title on the set is 3D consultant. But he found over time, he was the one who kept having to go to like a Francis Ford Coppola and explain to him what 3D cameras can and cannot do. And he talked about, look, on Magic Journeys, we composed every shot, you know, from the storyboards on forward, lighting on the set, everything to take advantage of what 3D film did best. Whereas on Captain EO, the decision was made going in that every shot would be composed for dramatic effect, not necessarily what would look best in 3D or what images could actually be shot in 3D. And so, so, you know, so Eric goes on, I, I tried repeatedly to explain to these people that were making Captain EO, but there were some very big names on this 3D movie and they all had opinions about what had to happen. <laughs> so shooting gets underway July of 1985. Coppola, literally days in, breaks the cameras, push them so far for these dramatic shots, he breaks the twin 65-millimeter cameras that Disney has used for years to make its 3D movies. And because production could not stop because of all of these high-powered, high-tightly-paid people are standing around, Disney, at great expense, leases a Super Panavision or a twin set of Super Panavision 65-millimeter cameras from another studio oh, in no. Canada. But now it gets worse. Because this twin camera set that Disney had the lease from the other studio hadn't been calibrated properly uh. before it's brought on the, the, the Captain EO set. So as a direct result, all of the footage that was initially shot with this camera was out of phase when it was developed. So Brevik talks about, I hit the ceiling when I see this footage because we are getting dailies three days after they've been shot. Because, again, it's 3D film. It takes that much longer to develop and then sync the images and all that. So that meant that three days' worth of footage had already been shot this way. And, oh, no. And it, the interesting thing is in the finished film, there are a half a dozen shots from those production days. And that's the question I want to throw out to our listeners. Anybody know which shots they're talking about in Captain EO? Because evidently it was... We can get away with this shot. We can use this footage at this moment in the movie. And I don't remember anything particularly being out of focus uh, or out of phase in Captain Arrow, you know, when I saw it. Well, I saw it a lot. And do you remember there is a shot where the commander played by Sean? Oh, yeah. Dick Sean. Right. Yep. Dick Sean. Mm -hmm. You see him far away in the background mm -hmm. and he's not a hologram mm -hmm. 
he is a you know in color mm-hmm. and it's a very quick shot of him just throwing his arms up and going what's going on what's going on what's going on mm-hmm. and i just wondered if that was some of the stuff because they did replace his things with a hologram version of himself you know it's so interesting you say that because as i recall from the making of captain eo it was when they were shooting the ship uh, pitching and yawing and the cantilevered set actually broke. In fact, I want to say that was when the camera got, got broken uh. as well, that you don't put a 3D camera on a moving, a moving set. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Getting back to the effects side and, and hopefully keying in with your friend who did all the, those uh, storyboards. Disney visual effects era, uh, veteran Harrison Eldon Shaw who, uh, after looking at the original storyboards uh, for this 3D movie, then did a breakdown of what was needed effects-wise to finish the film. And he goes to Disney Studios and says, hey, I'm going to need this much money to do the 60 effect shots that have been storyboarded for Captain EO. And Disney management's response is like, oh, no, no, no. Captain EO has already gone way over budget. We're not going to throw any more money at this project with the parks. We'll give you half of what you're asking for today. And you figure out how to make this 3D movie work with just 30 effect shots. And and meanwhile, Lucas and Coppola are starting to edit together Captain EO and re- are realizing that this thing looks really rough. So what do you do when you have a rough-looking film with a lot of rough-looking footage? Visual effects. You do a lot of visual effects, you know. To cover it up. Cover yeah. it up. So in the end, Captain EO didn't have 30 visual effects or 60 visual effects. It had a... Mm-hmm. Uh, 150 <laughs> visual effects shots, which not only blew up the movie's production budget, it threw the entire project off schedule. Eisner originally wanted Captain EO to open at Epcot Center and Disneyland Park by Easter of 86, which, by the way, Easter that year was March 30th. But with all the additional effect shots, meeting that Easter 1986 opening date was, was now impossible. So it's January of 86, you know, three months, again, from the original opening date of, of Captain EO. When George Lucas has come down to Disney and he watches a work-in-progress print of this 3D movie. And George has been around the block, especially when it comes to effects movies. And George is looking at how few of the additional effects shots he and Francis ordered are in this early, early version of Captain EO. And so lights come up in the screening room and George gets up out of his seat and walks down to Harrison's office and closes the door first and then asks Harrison flat out, is this going to be movie going to be ready for Easter? And, and Ellen Shaw swallows hard, grips the side of his chair and says, George says, nope, it's not going to be ready for Easter or Memorial Day. Or the 4th of July, <laughs> you know, and in fact, at that point, given how far behind schedule all of the effects work is on Captain EO, even Labor Day 1986 is, oh, no. is looking iffy. And by the way, Ellen Shaw is right. It missed Labor Day 1986. Captain EO didn't open till September 12th of that year. And Labor Day was September 1st. And by the way, the Disneyland version would even open later than that, September 18th, 1986. So, but what was great about this, you know, Ellen Shaw recalls this meeting with George Lucas years later as being one of the toughest things I've ever had to do in my life. But he said, Lucas was nonplussed, you know, he eventually, you know, got up out of his chair and said, okay, let me go talk to Michael. 
as in Michael Eisner, Harrison Ellenshaw's boss. But he then, you know, before he goes, he said, also, let's get you some help. So uh, George first calls Tom Smith, the, the former general manager of ILM, who, you know, who's now available to come. It said, look, I need you to come on down to Disney, see if there's anything that can be done to co you know, coordinate between the Disney effects people and ILM's effects people, you know, uh, the folks up in Marin to see if we can help bail these people out. And as a direct result, the space chase scene at the front of the movie, that was actually done by Joe Johnston. They handed that to him as a piece, and he he shot that up with Disney's own effects team, uh, ILM, using VistaVision cameras. And then the 3D star fields that start the movie, remember how that was really kind of a spectacular way to start the show? That was done by Dreamcast in L.A. And what I love about the story is it kind of reminds me of that all-hands-on-deck thing that was done for Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Where, you know, the only reason that made it out into theaters for June of 88 was, be, you know, Dale Bear's studio stepped up and did the entire Toontown scene. The, you know, that part of the movie that everybody loves. But uh, Dale and Jane Bear and her, their team did that. What I genuinely like about this story is it shows George Lucas being a decent human being. Uh, because think about it. It's he and Francis... Who, who caused this production problem for Harrison by adding all of those extra effect shots late in the game, just as the, the movie's headed into post-production. George knew that he now had to help Harrison find some sort of solution. More to the point, Lucas personally ran interference with Michael Eisner and, and protected Harrison's job at Disney. And that just doesn't happen all that often. In Hollywood? But don't you hear stories like that about George all the time? Like almost on anything, he was always backing um, his people. But again, I want to stress here how rare this right. is. You know? You're right. You're run Yeah. Yeah. Again, he's sitting in the screening room and looking at the 17-minute-long the cut of Captain EO and how few effect shots are done. And, you know, he's sitting there in in the darkened theater calculating three months. They have three months to deliver the shots. They're never going to do it. And, you know, time to go walk up the hall, time to go speak with Harrison. But finally, this, I thought you of all people would appreciate this about when they finally finished the movie and it was time to show it at both Epcot and Disneyland, they had a specially built 54-foot-wide, 24-foot-tall screen with a 7,000-watt bulb up in the projection oh, booth to make sure they had nice, clear images in that theater. And the other thing, remember, is because this is a continuous loop show, Brian, this isn't on reels or this isn't on a platter. This is in one of those continuous loop things where they would just dump the, the footage in loose and then right. it would just... And it would just go through. Yeah. Now, did, did they have to show it with two projectors? My understanding was no. Remember, it's only 17 minutes long. So Okay, so because they, uh, they actually printed it mm -hmm. that way yep. on the film. Okay. The other thing that's fascinating about this is if we... The other part of the Michael Eisner, George Lucas story was one of the reasons they got him to agree to produce Captain EO is, to be honest, Star Tours was taking so long. 
And it was just, uh, you know, George, we need something else with Park faster. Can you, how would you feel about helping out with the 3D movie? You know, what's it about? It's in space. Oh, yeah, I know space. Okay, I'll do yeah, that. Yeah, I've been, I've been there. I've been there. Okay. So, all right. Anyway, folks, that's going to do it for this week. Brian and I will be back in two weeks' time. In the meantime, uh, where can folks find you on social media, Brian? I'm going to be on instagram mm -hmm. that's the easiest place to find me i like instagram i do a lot of stuff over there and it's b t gone g-a-u-g-h-a-n and you'll be able to find me there cool uh well you can find me on uh x twitter whatever we're calling it also instagram is jim hill media and over on facebook at jim hill media news also want to remind you we have a couple of other podcasts here you might want to check out we have Disney Dish that I do with Len Testa. We have Fine Tuning, which is animation news. I do that with Drew Taylor. And by the way, Mr. Taylor has a wonderful show that he does, Light the Fuse, which, by the way, is the official Mission Impossible podcast. He does that with Charles Hood. We also have Marvelous Disney, which I do with Aaron Adams, the talented gentleman who edits all of the podcasts here at Jim Hill Media. And he also has a, a, an outside project, 32nd Street, which shines a spotlight on Madison Avenue. Those are all worth your time, worth listening to, folks. Also, just this past weekend, a project two years in the making, Disney Unpacked. Uh, first ever video series that Len Test and I have done. And what's really great about this show is uh, we have partnered with Jim Shule, veteran Imagineer, worked for 30 plus years for the company, has amazing stories about attractions, all the attractions that you love already, like uh, Rock and Roller Coaster, Mater's Junkyard Jamboree, you know, that coupled with 100,000 photos he took over the course of his career, seriously, over 100,000 wow. photos. We're, we're still digging through them. But that just launched on Patreon, and if you want to go check that out, you can sample it. We've got uh, some teaser videos up on YouTube right now, just under Disney Unpacked. If you could all, if folks could do Brian and I a favor, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and recommend uh, looking at Lucasfilm, that helps us get extra ears and eyeballs. And if you really, really, really like what you heard here, you want to head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would be cool. And I think that's going to do it for this week. So I guess Brian and I on different coasts will be heading out shortly to go see the creator, <laughs> you know, so we can, yep. we can talk about that on next week's show. And thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon. <laughs>